Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org slash daily. Although he is the member of parliament for Durham, and it was his second crack at the leadership of the federal conservative party, Aaron O'Toole was not the frontrunner going into this year's contest to take over from Andrew Scheer. But proving once again that campaigns matter, the former Harper cabinet minister and veteran of the Royal Canadian Air Force won the job on the third ballot. He's now leader of Canada's official opposition and a man on a mission to introduce himself to Canadians. And with that, we welcome Aaron O'Toole, who is in Ontario's capital city tonight. Uh, First of all, Aaron, it's good to see you again, and congratulations. That was a nice short little coronation you enjoyed a few weeks back. (laughs) Well, it was the culmination of a long campaign, Steve, and uh, it's great to be on one of my favorite public affairs shows, The Agenda, as leader of the Conservatives. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but it's actually been uh, almost 60 years. Lester Pearson was the last Prime Minister of Canada who actually had military experience. So if you get the job, um, you know, you you will be blazing a relatively uh, untrod path uh, over the last six decades. So let's start there. What in your military background do you think helps prepare you for the job you want? Well, I learned that if you can't follow and be part of a team, you can't have the skills and ability to lead that team. So I'm very proud over the course of my life that whether in the military or business, my charitable work, or in other circumstances, I have been part of teams and learned from the people around me. And now I'm taking all those skills with me to to lead, Steve. My military time really deepened my my love of the country. I, I'm a patriot, a word that some people even look askance at when you, you say that. But I love this country. I'm worried about some of the challenges we're facing. And my military time also let me live and train and serve in all parts of the country. So I'm going to use that, use the discipline that I gained there, but also skills I learned as a dad, a husband, a kid from the suburbs of Toronto. I, I, I'm a regular guy that's been given this awesome responsibility to try and get our country back on track. Well, let's dive into some of the issues here. You have been critical of the current government's response to the pandemic. Uh, I wonder if uh, you could tell me off the top, do you think the eligibility criteria for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB, do you think those criteria were too broad? Well, I proposed in late February, Steve, to actually use the EI system expand the EI system to to be there for people that were losing jobs or employment as a result of COVID shutdowns, including self-employed people. So I think there's always been some gaps in the EI system that we would have needed to address. And when I was proposing this, the government was still saying there was no problem. We didn't even have to close the border. So the Trudeau government was a month and a half to two months late uh, from where they should have been in terms of a response. I also think more important than what became the CERB program, Steve, they were slow and very confused on the wage subsidy. And so when employers were saying, how can I hold on to my employees over what could be several months of closures, they weren't sure what support was there to keep the jobs. And they saw the government roll out a CERB with really no qualifying criteria, very easy. So it led many employers to lay off and let go more people. And 
that's going to compound our challenges rebuilding the economy as more people were let go because of the mismanagement of the programs by the Trudeau government. Well, let me pick up on that then. There is, I gather, a new style of economic thinking among some, thanks to the COVID crisis, which suggests that balanced budgets are no longer the, um, you know, the be-all and, and end-all of financial stability uh, because we managed to go from a $30 billion deficit to a $363 billion deficit in one year, and apparently the country is still alive. Do you believe balanced budgets are really the fiscal imperative today that we presumably once always thought they were? Well, I think we can't live beyond our means forever. You know, the parliamentary budget officer said the way the Trudeau government's headed, these sort of massive deficits, a hundred billion dollar plus, Steve, there's only two years before the fiscal capacity of the government crashes to a halt and we have serious, serious pain. So we have to be balanced. My focus will be on the well-being of families and working Canadians. We need to make sure that people get back to work and that we highlight the nobility of work, Steve. You know, particularly people that come to Canada with very little. I'm blown away in Mississauga and Brampton and in Surrey, B.C., when these new Canadians come and within two decades they're employing 30 other people. And there's a nobility in that risk-taking and that working hard to provide for your family. That will be my focus. Uh, GDP growth is great. Uh, reducing overspending is great, but it has to be done in a way that allows people to, to provide for, for their family, for their, for their aged parents. So I've said we've got to get our fiscal house in order over the next decade or so. The, the focus will not be a rapid tightening of the belt to get to a balanced budget. The focus will be the well-being of Canadian families. I did see your Labor Day social media video, which uh, aired the other day, obviously. And um, I have to say, I can't recall a time when a conservative leader put forth a message that was so unabashedly pro-worker, even pro-union. Uh, you say the goal of economic policy should be more than wealth creation, but about solidarity. What kind of signal are you sending um, in as much as, are you changing the ideology of what it means to be a conservative right now in the country? I'm showing that I want more people, Steve, to look in the mirror and see a conservative staring back at them, particularly if they're working families. I, I, I want the auto worker in Windsor, the steel worker in Hamilton and Sault Ste. Marie, seeing themselves as conservative because here's the reality. We are the only party that supports building things in Canada, building pipelines, getting Canadian energy to market, having a softwood lumber deal so we can reopen some of our, our mills in British Columbia, Northern Ontario that have been shut down. I'm proud of the fact that our prospecting, developing, exploration, mines, that's what Canada's known for. We can't shut all this down as the as the Liberals would like to. So if people want to, to get up early in the morning and work hard, they're gonna have me in their corner and they should realize they're conservative because Jagmeet Singh was supporting the illegal rail blockades months ago, shutting down jobs for working families because of protest culture and, and, and activism. We need a party that will stand up for people that want to work hard, build the country. And, and uh, union members, I mentioned them in my victory speech at 1.30 in the morning, Steve. I want, uh, I want them to see a place for, for unions and, and standing up for workers in the Conservative Party. I was up and I saw the speech and uh, the fact that you were awake to deliver it, uh, more power to you. 
Uh, okay, I don't want to take a lot of time on this because I know you've talked about it ad nauseum, but I do want to talk about the big blue tent just a little bit. Can a leader who is pro-choice on abortion, as you are, who is pro-same-sex marriage, as you are, who is pro-LGBTQ rights, as you are, satisfy the social conservatives in your party who helped you win? Well, I am the leader as well, as I am, <laughs> to use your, your structure. I didn't hide uh, the fact that I got into politics to build a prosperous country and to, to see Canada take its place on the world stage with our values and allies, and that I didn't get into politics to remove rights from my fellow citizens. I got into politics to safeguard and protect those rights, much like our men and women in uniform are, are seen standing up for our rights and our institutions. I do have a, an approach of respect, though, Steve, and I think you know my my style well enough that uh, I will have debates and I will respect people even if I don't agree with their point of view. So I have a good relationship with social conservatives. They're a very important part of our uh, of our party. And how can we work on issues related to religious freedom, uh, helping the vulnerable, you know, standing up for the great work done by faith communities uh, in across the country rather than shutting them out of programs like the liberals did with the Canada summer jobs grants. So I think there is a place. I've been very clear when it comes to rights, and I received a clear mandate in the leadership, Steve. So I think we can keep the big blue tent, expand it even more, and hold the Liberals to account really on their record on the economy, our standing in the world, and the fact that Canada is more divided than it's been in my lifetime. Uh, I appreciate everything you say, and this is this is. I mean, it's a bit of a double standard in politics, in in as much as this is something every conservative leader has to has to deal with in ways that other party leaders don't have to deal with. But I'm just going by what many of your supporters have said, which is your party's got to find another million votes somewhere in the country or you can't win a majority government. And and and, uh, you know, you'll forgive me for putting it this way, but but currying too much favor with social conservatives will be in the eyes of some a very difficult way to attract those million new voters. How do you walk that tightrope? I don't think it's as hard as you suggest, Steve. You know, uh, I I grew up in the Toronto area. We all know the, the food drive at Christmas for the Daily Bread Food Bre uh, Bank. Why is it called Daily Bread? It, because it was started by faith community, uh, as most of the shelters for the vulnerable uh, outreach programs were all started by people motivated by their faith. That's important. I respect that. and And we need to show that People can bring their faith or their cultural perspectives to public life. And how can we influence public policy in a way that we're helping tackle issues like homelessness and other things, not by boxing out people because they they happen to be motivated by their faith convictions. How can we work on areas where, uh, where there's common ground, where there's positive public policy? And I've always talked about this. And... Standing up for some of these things in an age where if you even talk about faith, uh, some parties will kick you out of the party, like like with Mr. Trudeau. I think we just need to focus on things that bring Canadians together and reassure people that uh, rights granted to Canadians through the Charter or the courts are going to be rights not only I support, I defend as Conservative leader. Let's talk a little foreign policy. It, it is, of course, uh, extremely rare that foreign policy ever becomes a decisive issue at the ballot box. But having said that, I'm still interested in what your approach is. You know, there is this sort of Pearsonian approach that has been the way for Canada for many, many decades, where Canada tries to play a bit of a soft power, moderating influence in the world. And then there's more uh, brass knuckles power politics. 
Uh, which camp are you in? Well, I would I would suggest to you you're not defining the Pearsonian approach correctly, Steve. He actually said in a famous speech whether it's in the Korean Peninsula or in Germany when a Canadian uh, uh, soldier stands up uh, for rights and for other countries, they're defending Canada just as much as they were here. So the, the Pearsonian tradition is actually not just wrapped up in this peacekeeping myth that was created. Uh, Canada of Vimy Ridge of World War II, as I remind my American friends regularly, Canada was in both of those global conflicts before the Americans because of our commitment to our allies and our values. We always play a role commensurate with our size and ability, and we're never belligerent, which I think is amazing about us. But you can count on us to stand up for things we believe in, sometimes in the peacekeeping context. But in the post-COVID world, uh, particularly with respect to China, I think we have to stand with countries like Australia, the UK and others to start rebalancing global trade patterns that have been disrupted by China, start standing up for, for human rights, the situation in Hong Kong, the situation with the Uyghurs, which I think is atrocious, you know, a religious minority being persecuted and and and, and taken to, to re-education camps. So I think Canada, I think Canadians don't want us just chasing the almighty buck. They want us standing up for our values alongside our traditional allies. Every single politician who eventually gets into a position of power in this country says something like that. And then when they come, when it comes time to realize that it's going to hurt our businesses if we actually say what we mean on China, uh, they compromise or they fold or they, you know, they just put those principles aside for a second. How do we know you won't be the same? Because I've grown up with a very um, distinct view of a real view of China, uh, unlike Mr. Trudeau, who said it was the country he most admired because the dictatorship gets things done quickly. My time in the military saw the, the rise of, of China as a security issue and, and a global military power. When I worked in the private sector, I saw how China didn't respect uh, global intellectual property and was, was involved in counterfeit operations. and and was not abiding by global trade rules. So I've had a realistic view from China from the day I was elected, Steve. And post-COVID, I think the world is going to realize that there's a realignment of global trade. I've been talking about free trade amongst free countries. So here's the kicker. A more principled approach to China today is actually good for business because, Steve, I want to bring back some critical manufacturing to Canada, starting with PPE, protective personal equipment. I've actually worked personally with Premier Ford on a mass company that will be opening and manufacturing in the Barrie area and not in China. Uh, we need to see more of that. We need to see some manufacturing return to southern Ontario. And it may involve Canada having to look at, at tariffing other nations. And so that, that sounds a bit crazy for someone who's a free trader, but I want free trade amongst countries that follow the rules. And that's what we haven't seen with respect to China. We are in the midst of a cultural slash race relations reckoning across North America right now. And I just want to touch on that uh, in our conversation here tonight. There are people in this country who believe that Canada was built on white supremacy. What do you think of that? Well, I tried to address that this week in my first speech to caucus, Steve. And I know you've written a lot, uh, lot about this, how we look back at the past based on our values of today. It's a difficult exercise. And I quoted Senator Sinclair, who ran the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. How can we not 
tear down and destroy statues and erase our history, but how can we provide context so that people understand it today to actually show we've made progress and identify where areas we need to make more progress? Uh, I, I raised Louis Riel in my speech as well, which probably had some in the press gallery going, uh, is Aaron O'Toole wading into history, wading into uh, politically correct, uh, unnavigable waters? No one is a perfect figure. I'm a politician that's going to be asking people to back me for prime minister. I'm not perfect, even. I'm always trying to be ethical and to do my best. But we should look back and say people like McDonald, people like Riel, did some incredible things to build the country that I think is the greatest in the world. They also did some terrible things and were flawed and were, were people of their era. So how can we learn, not strike down? And I think this presentism, judging 160 years ago by the standards and morals of today, is a bit of a dangerous game and it can be used for a political narrative, often on the left. So I try and wade in respectfully. I've been talking about this for many years now, and I think Canadians don't want to see historical figures cancelled. They want to see a serious discussion so that we can learn and get better. Many Conservative politicians, and I think Doug Ford's one of them, think it's unfair to be compared to Donald Trump. But you just named your economic plan Canada First, which sounds a bit like America First, which is what he's going after. What are you signaling by calling your plan Canada First? I'm signaling that we need to be ready for a second wave of COVID-19. And there's sometimes we can't even trust our closest friends in the United States because we saw what happened with 3M and, and PPE when the world was in crisis, Steve. So when I've talked about bringing some jobs and critical manufacturing back to, to Canada and have worked already with, with Premier Ford and, 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 and other levels of government on this, that's what I mean. We have to be able to be ready because if we have a second wave, I want to make sure our seniors and our vulnerable, vulnerable citizens are taken care of, that our frontline uh, healthcare workers and essential workers have what they need. And the hope is we learn the lessons from the first wave and don't have a complete economic shutdown. We learn how to distance, how to use masks, how to sanitize, how to avoid transmission, keep the curve flat. And putting an emphasis on getting Canada ready, making sure we're not going to rely on anyone else, Steve, because we saw in a in a pandemic that can't that can't happen. You can't rely on others. You have to have that ability yourself. And I think a lot of Canadians want to know that to reassure the country as we head in to the next number of months where we could see continued spike in cases. I do want to do one little follow-up here on populism, though, because on the one hand, you know, you did bang a bit of a populist drum during the course of your leadership campaign. On the other hand, I hear David Hurley, you know, who used to represent uh, the Liberal Party uh, quite actively when Paul Martin was the Prime Minister. I heard him on the uh, the Hurley Burley podcast say things like, "You you are you are hitting the populist notes, but in a very reasonable way these days." So let me ask you: walking that tightrope, not being Trumpy in the way you are populist being a more reasonable populist. Uh, are we on to something here in terms of the secret to what you hope will be your success? Well, I, I often look at figures like, like Winston Churchill, uh, the will of the people and, and the will of parliament. Is that populism, Steve? You know, I, I'm trying to address the hopes, aspirations and concerns of Canadians. Western alienation, our friends, my friends here in Ontario don't know how deep seated the frustration is in Western Canada. They see 
Ottawa having removed their ability to thrive. Is my addressing their their concerns? In some cases, they want to leave the country. Is that populism or is that just listening to the needs of the people? My fight for working families and, and wanting to get more union members and, and stand up for them as, as a leader, is, is that populism or, or is that just responding and making sure the Conservative Party is relevant to the needs of the day? I don't define it in any way. I would say what we're doing here is a little more similar to uh, what Boris Johnson has done in the UK. We have looked to see how he made breakthroughs with long-standing Labour voters by by championing this concept of building the country stronger, more re- resilient together. Uh, we don't look to to anyone but ourselves for guidance, but certainly I want to make sure Canadians, more of them, see themselves reflected in our party. Okay, we often spend time on this program talking bigger pictures as opposed to the news of the day, but people are going to think I'm an idiot if I don't ask you how you're going to vote on the throne speech coming up. So let me do one little sort of politics of the day question. Uh, Have you made a decision on how you will vote on the throne speech yet? Well, Steve, you know my father had a great number of great expressions. He said, you're born with two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you talk. I haven't heard the throne speech yet, Steve. And in fact, when the prime minister called to congratulate me the morning after I won the leadership, uh, he it was just a nice call. But I said, look, there's two things I want to talk about, prime minister. One is Western alienation. It is serious. Our, our, our unity is at risk. And the other is the return of parliamentary committees studying a range of things that were shut down by prorogation. And I said, particularly with the throne speech, if you continue to strike down the resource economy, you're going to not just undermine our prosperity as a country, you're going to lead to more division. So I want to see what he has in the speech. I don't want him to use this speech as an excuse to avoid accountability and force some election on some green boondoggle sort of uh, shiny object speech. I want to see sleeves rolled up and how are we going to get the million Canadians who are unemployed and ending CERB benefits, uh, how are we going to get them back to work? How are we going to get our country moving and unite uh, some of the people losing faith in our country? And we're, we're willing to work with them if there's some practical solutions there. We also, as I said in my victory speech, we have to start defining our own vision for Canadians, and I will try and do a bit of that as well. They are probably counting on the fact that you, as a brand new leader whose feet are barely wet, as the leader of your party, uh, will want to avoid a, a general election this soon into your tenure. Uh, what do you make of that? That's probably part of their calculus, Steve. I think they, they think, hey, nobody knows this kid from Bowmanville, Ontario, who had to say, had to introduce himself in his victory speech. I, I don't claim to be a celebrity. Mr. Trudeau's birth was covered in McLean's magazine. Uh, <laughs> mine certainly wasn't. But I'm proud of the values I was raised with and how hard I've worked. Uh, So we will be ready. I'm trying to get out there and meet people. And we will be ready. We're in a better fiscal position than the Liberals. We've paid off our loan from the last campaign. They have not. We have this same sort of organizational structure in place. We have literally hundreds of people across the country reaching out, wanting to run for us in all parts of Canada. So we will be ready. I said, if they're rattling sabers, Steve, our saber is sharper and ready to go. But my preference is to try and build a, a vision for Canada and have a, an election, not on Justin Trudeau's timing, but when Canada's ready for it. Okay, in our remaining moments here, I want to ask you a couple of personal questions. 
Um, and, and, you know, we're not uh, getting off the path here because you did actually refer to this in your victory speech at 1.30 in the morning on the morning that you won the leadership. Uh, Aaron, how old were you when your mother died? I was nine when, when my, uh, my mom died of breast cancer, and uh, I was the oldest of, of three children at the time. And it's a defining part of my life, and, and I mention it because my daughter Molly, who just started high school this week, Steve, is, is named uh, after my mother, who's still an important, very important part of my life. I suspect Canadians would, as they want to get to know you better, would like to know how in heaven's name you as a nine-year-old managed to get through all that. Well, you know, uh, you know, our family, my dad was one of uh, nine kids from Peterborough, Ontario. So my aunts, uh, including an aunt who was who was a nun at the time, took time off from her missionary work in Brazil to come stay with myself and my sisters. My aunt Jane remains an important part of my life. All my sisters helped. My dad hadn't made probably a meal. He worked at General Motors and suddenly was on his own with three kids. Um, our neighbors on Morgandale Crescent and Bowmanville, you know, you know, I'll never forget them, Steve. And um, some people on that street know that I start every campaign by going to Morgandale Crescent. I never want to forget my roots. And uh, I did that the day after I became leader or my first trip into Bowmanville, we stopped at Morgandale and that's formative in my life. I have great admiration for my father who persevered. And then I was amazingly lucky to have a second mother, I don't even like using the term stepmom because Peggy became our mom and, and the glue of our family. And then we grew to five children. All families face this adversity. That's why I told our caucus this week, our motto is my old Air Force motto, per ardua ad astra, through adversity to the stars. Because not only did that little kid who, who lost his mom um, persevere, I'm very proud of all my siblings, you know, my mom, my dad, and our family, and our extended family, and our community in Durham really helped us succeed. And that's why I, I admire public service so much. And I think uh, despite all the slings and arrows in politics, it's worth it if you think you're helping your community and your country. Let's spend our last minute here talking about your dad, because I think the last time you were in this studio, you were with your dad, uh, John O'Toole, who, of course, was the member of provincial parliament for Durham. At the same time, you were the member of the federal parliament for Durham. I think that's the only time in Canadian history when father and son have represented the same riding at the same time. And we had a conversation about that. I want to go back to the night of the leadership convention where you won. And I want to know what the first thing your dad said to you was after he saw you when you won. Um, I think it might be the first time in John O'Toole's life, Steve, that he was speechless. Uh, he, he, he was just so proud. And to see him, you know, in the COVID era, I gave a, the most important speech of my life at 1.30 to a largely empty room. But it didn't matter to me because my, my wife, Rebecca, and our children, Molly and Jack, were there. And my mom and dad were there. And to see my dad uh, out of the corner of my eye kind of hugging Molly when I mentioned my mom and his late wife, Molly, Gosh, he, he was just so emotional. Uh, he, he wants to move to Ottawa now, Steve, to, to be to be part of it. And, uh, you know, look, I, uh, I'm just so fortunate to have been instilled with these values. And I'm still the sort of small town Toronto suburbs kid. And I would not only be the first military veteran prime minister since Pearson. Pearson was the last Ontarian, Steve. He was from, represented the Algoma riding. I would be the first prime minister to represent 
a riding in the GTA. I think that's pretty exciting, too. That is the new leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition, Aaron O'Toole, who's also the member of parliament for Durham. I look forward to the day, uh, Aaron, when we can actually have a conversation in person in this studio. But in the meantime, it's been good having you on TVO tonight. Thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity, Steve. Great to be with you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.